Okay, everyone. So, um, welcome. Welcome to the Institute of the Americas' very first um, national security and foreign policy seminar series. Um, before we start, I just want to give you a short intro into what the seminar series is going to look like. So, as you can tell from the title, it's going to be split between, it's going to be split thematically between foreign policy sessions and national security sessions. Right now, you're attending a national security team seminar series. Um, we want to do this monthly, so this is the very first one in October. The next one will be in November the 18th. Those are the only seminars we're going to do this term because, as you know, it will end by the 13th of December and we don't want to force it. But we will be starting again in January, February, and March with three more series. But, yeah, this is broadly how we want to structure this. Um, the panels should take one hour, one hour and a half max. Um, we want to do a more varied format. So right now, tonight, you will be seeing a panel discussion. But next month, for example, you have the chance to see a round table. Um, sometimes in the future, you can see book presentations and stuff like that. So we want to we play around with the format. But right now, it will be a panel session. And yeah, I think that's pretty much, pretty much it. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Francesca. I'm the co-organizer. I'm a PhD student here at the Institute. And yes, I'll just echo what Alan said. We hope to um, get some really interesting um, debates and discussions going, um, and also to engage with you. Um, so thank you all for coming. Um, and a few thank yous <coughs> um, before we start. Thank you to the Institute for um, supporting us and funding us. Um, with this project. Um, thank you to Dr. Nadia Hilliard, who's in the audience, for um, helping us with the logistics. <laughs> um, Daisy Boak, also uh, the events, office, uh, events officer, for helping us um, to promote it. She's done a, a really fantastic job. And also Alan has done some really great posters, so thank you to everybody. Okay, so without further ado, I will introduce um, our first speaker. Uh, Dr. Chris Fuller is an Associate Professor in History at the University of Southampton. He specialises in US foreign policy from 1945 to the present and has a particular interest in the war on terror and wider US counter-terrorism practices. His first book, See It, Shoot It, The Secret History of the CIA's Lethal Drone Program, was published by Yale University Press in 2017. He's also the author of a forthcoming volume titled Using Law to Fight Terror, Legal Approaches to Combating Violent Non-State Actors, which features both practitioners and scholars exploring ways in which legal architecture can be better leveraged to enhance counter-terrorism efforts. His current research explores the concept of the United States as a post-territorial empire and the double-edged role played by technology in both enabling and undermining this. And his talk tonight focuses on cybersecurity and a site on national security in the, in the digital domain, the problematic rise of US cyber command. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and thank you very much for the uh, organisers and, and for the idea actually of setting up um, a national security uh, seminar series. I think it's a, it's a great time to be discussing national, well, it's always a good time to discuss national security with the United States, but um, I think in particular periods of insecurity, um, it's always better to, to spend time discussing these things. Um, so really what I want to do is I want to kind of talk about this in two parts because I, I am by trade um, a historian, so 
um, it, it's typical for us to try to drag something back to some historical case study and to demonstrate how um, nothing is new um, and how um, not that history ever gives us any lessons because of course we can't avoid repeating things because it, the, the context is always different but how we can see that there are certain trends that we can probably expect to re-emerge and I would very much say that's the case with the way the United States conducts itself in uh, cyberspace. Um, so just as a, um, uh, a first example, um, an important thing to understand with the United States and, and cyberspace is that there is essentially no institutional memory um, across the US in the, the, the government uh, or at the NSA um, or any of the other branches involved with cybersecurity. Um, they still discuss cyberspace as a brave new frontier. Um, they are still consistently shocked by things that occur there. Um, in a way that if you compare American air power or the emergence of the United States as a, as a military superpower, um, they settled into the rhythm and tomba of that much more quickly uh, than they do with cyberspace. Cyberspace, it is still uh, new. And we can see that really, not, not just with these examples here, um, how each one of these things is discussed as, as new, and then decades later, um, it's also a surprise and a, a kind of new event. But the same occurs for, for the creation of Cyber Command. Um, that in, the, in his um, testimony uh, before the Armed Services Committee about the need to establish Cyber Command, Keith Alexander, um, director of the NSA at the time, um, used exactly the same rhetoric, that... Uh, a mission involving the relatively sudden dominance of the new computer and communication technology of our age. There was nothing sudden about this, it's not new, uh, and yet in 2010 this was still the way it was being discussed, as if this in some way had crept up upon the United States. Um, but that's not really the case. This has been an important domain to the United States since the late 1960s, um, and they just seem unable to adjust to this. And in my experience of working with computer scientists and others as, as a historian, uh, that's also something that comes across, that actually um, there, is a, there is a significant ignorance to the history of their own um, domain and, and the workings on that. Um, pretty rich area, actually, for, for research. What that means is that, uh, that there's, there's big gaps. Downside is um, the classification is a nightmare when it comes to this. Um, it's really, really enormous amounts of this. Things that really shouldn't be classified at all are, and that makes research very difficult, and probably gives us some explanation of why there is so little institutional memory, because there's, there's just not much dissemination going on. Um, so this is really, I'm, I'm talking about the creation of um, US Cyber Command, which is now um, uh, with us, it now exists, um, as a unified combat command, so Cybercom, um, is the same as, say, CENTCOM or AFRICOM. It is now um, a stand-up unified command. Um, and although they're briefly talking about this in 2006, the Air Force talks about this, that, that's kind of shelved. And it really starts to take off in 2009, um, when Robert Gates, the then um, Secretary of Defense, um, issues this um, uh, memorandum where... The discussion is these um, that, that cyberspace offers unprecedented opportunities, but also that the dependency that the United States has on it has created new vulnerabilities. Again, nothing new about these vulnerabilities. They're the exact same vulnerabilities that they have had for decades. Um, but uh, here we then start to see this language of securing the freedom of action in cyberspace, synchronizing more fighting efforts. Um, and this is the 
the most controversial part of this, providing support to civil authorities and international partners. The reason that's so important is what we're seeing here is a blending, a, a militarizing of cyberspace and an extension of what is going to be a military command into civilian cyberspace, um, supporting civil authorities. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain why that's so controversial in, in a moment. Um, so uh, Keith Alexander, um, again, speaking about this, we can see how cyberspace, one of the ways they convince people that this is important is to start talking about cyberspace as a domain um, and to compare it to others. So freedom of action in cyberspace in the 21st century is, uh, is inherent to US interests as freedom of the seas and access to air and space. So they're putting it very much into that same um, category here. That this is a domain. Um, and we see that actually um, formalized um, when asked in the uh, hearings about the establishment of Cyber Command, um, it's pretty clear where the focus and the concerns of the US is. Who is it that would prevent freedom of operation in this domain? Uh, well, the significant concern at that point is, is China. Um, and so just one example um, here from the hearings. So when um, uh, asked about where the threat would be and what the threat would, would come from. Uh, the Chinese PLA uh, stating, if you want to attack the United States, attack its banking system, is provided as an example of why the United States needs to begin to militarize this domain. Um, and the first time you see that actually put into words is July 2011, with the, the, new, the release of the new um, uh, strategy for operating in cyberspace. And this is the first time uh, strategic Initiative 1, treat cyberspace as an operational domain. So that is, that's new language, but it's really important. So that is putting this into the same category um, as was being mentioned there. Land, sea, air, space, cyberspace. It is a domain that the United States needs to fight in, it needs to um, police, it needs to dominate if needs be. Um, building on that, by April 2015, the Obama administration releases its next cyber strategy document. We can see that now it's a domain. You need to build and maintain ready forces to conduct operations within that domain uh, and to defend the US homeland. So this is not just about projection of military force in that domain, but it's also about cyber security. It's about um, protection within that domain. Um, and if we look at the structures uh, of, uh, that are set out in that strategy, um, if you look here that support teams, so that's the domestic part, um, actually are a significant part of this. So this is as much about defending the homeland as it is projecting force. And the reason that's so important is that is the militarization of domestic cyberspace in the United States. Um, Cybercom at this point is part of the NSA. And the director of the NSA wears two hats, uh, both director of the NSA and the director of Cybercom. So we are talking about um, authorizing the NSA to operate in domestic cyberspace in the United States. Um, so it's a, a significant um, uh, shift. Uh, there's a slight change to that idea and that concern that this is about nation states in particular that uh, this is about the likes of China and cyber attacks in December following the uh, Russian information warfare 
Um, and the likes of John McCain and members of the Armed Services Committee um, reacting to what they see as um, uh, Russian information warfare. And that the NSA also needs to do more to prevent this. Um, it, there's, there's nowhere near enough time to get into how misplaced that is, um, that the idea that uh, in some way the NSA can stop uh, Russian meddling. Um, and all that Russian meddling is really what was wrong with the 2016 election. Um, I mean, just, just incredibly misplaced. An externalization of all of these domestic issues that the United States had uh, <coughs> factored into that. I, I wouldn't for one second argue that um, Russian information warfare was a, a major factor in the, the 2016 election um, the, the way it was. And plenty of evidence has come out since to suggest that actually you want to look more at right-wing echo chambers and how they function domestically rather than external threats. But this, was, this added to this sense that cyber command needs to be stood up. Um, and so in, on the 23rd of December 2016, the uh, National Defence Authorization Act elevated Cybercom to a, univated, uh, a unified combatant command. Um, and uh, it is finally created in May 2018. Um, and its mission, uh, it's quite cool. I love, I love seals. Uh, I love kind of looking at seals and how they set them out. Uh, not, not like seals, though. they're nice too. But, um, What's really good with this one is uh, if you look around the, uh, the inside circle there, you have a sequence, a hash sequence here. Um, and if you put that hash sequence into a, an MD5 decryptor, then you get the uh, mission statement uh, of uh, Cyber Command. So that's just pretty cool. And there is their mission statement, right? Plans, coordinates, um, uh, integrates, synchronizes, and conducts activities to direct operations <coughs> and defense of Department of Defense networks. Nothing too surprising there that the NSA and Cyber Command would work on Department of Defense, but then um, prepare to and when directly conduct full spectrum military cyberspace operations in order to ensure actions in all domains and ensure US and allied freedom of action. Um, so uh, this is about projection of force into this new domain. Now the reason I want to uh, focus on this historically then, the, the, the second part of what I want to talk about is I want to suggest this has all been done before. And it ended badly the first time, and it'll end badly the second time. And a lack of institutional memory means it's just going to play out pretty much the same way. Um, so in the uh, 1980s, um, in 1984, uh, this was passed, National Security Decision Directive 145 by the Reagan administration. Um, a couple of issues around cybersecurity arise at the time, um, uh, some domestic hacking, um, uh, but also uh, the film War Games um, uh, it plays, has a big influence on Reagan, um, and he demands an investigation into this. And actually, the, the, those that advised War Games, um, uh, who worked at RAND, deliberately loaded it with messages about cybersecurity, knowing that Reagan was going to watch this film. Uh, because of one of the director's um, uh, mothers was a good personal friend of Reagan. And he watches it a week after he watches Return of the Jedi, which is also about stealing plans and hacking. So it's really in his mind at this point. And uh, on the Monday after watching it at Camp David at the weekend, he says, has anyone watched this movie? Uh, his advisors will say, no, we're preparing for a nuclear disarmament conference. We were quite busy at the weekend. And he spends 20 minutes setting out the plot and says, could this happen? And Donald Latham is in that meeting. He has been involved as an advisor on that movie and says, I'll look into it. Comes back and says, yeah, of course it could. Much worse than it happens in that movie. 
So that then triggers this National Security Decision Directive. Um, Latham, this is very similar. In the same way the director of the NSA is now the head of Cybercom, Latham sits between NSA, Department of Defense, and civilian administration. Um, and he argues that the best way to defend America is to prepare to attack your adversaries. And that what you need is these are connected. Computer network defense is the same as attack, is the same as exploitation. The NSA needs to be doing all of it. And that's the only way you can see stuff coming and secure yourself against it. So what the um, decision directive does is it creates a um, national telecommunications and information system security committee. Um, so this is the, the equivalent of Cybercom at the time, dominated by um, the Department of Defense. And their job is to look after domestic cybersecurity as well as prepare to project offensive operations. So it works very similar to Cybercom. Um, the director of the NSA is also given responsibility for reviewing all domestic security. So the NSA now has an enormous domestic role as a result of, of this directive in September 1984. Um, and the problem is, according to the NSA's own history, this thing is an absolute lightning rod at Fort Meade. They're, they're really worried about this. Because there are a whole section at Fort Meade that see their job as exploiting loopholes, not patching loopholes. So how can this work? How can you be a spy agency and be a security agency? You can't do those two things. They're not interested in patching uh, weaknesses. They want to exploit those weaknesses. Um, but it also kicks off with Congress, the business sector, academics, and privacy campaigners. And I would suggest that Cybercom is going to run into all of these in the same way. If we start with Congress, um, one of the first things that it decides to investigate, because it's seen as a national security threat, is the electoral system, uh, which has now moved online, um, or was beginning to move online. And as you can see here, um, two congressmen in particular, Glickman and Brooks, are really concerned at the idea of um, the government getting involved a government agency getting involved with um, loopholes, finding weaknesses in the electoral um, uh, system. So cast your mind to what John McCain and the Armed Services Committee were arguing in December 2016, that they need to do something about this. The NSA needs to be involved. Well, here, once the NSA is involved, they're saying, get the NSA out of this. They shouldn't be looking at this, because the NSA serves the executive. Um, it's coming at the end of the era of trust. You've had the church committee hearings. Um, it's been found out that the NSA was involved in spying upon American citizens um, in two different projects. So the NSA has already been acting outside of its charter. So they're not being paranoid to think that it's problematic to trust um, this, this agency on a domestic front. In the business side of things, the concern is around the NSA throwing its weight around in the, graft, in the granting of contracts. So when, algorithm, uh, when encryption was first being introduced, there, was a, there needed to be a senatorial hearing um, into the role that the NSA had played in granting uh, a uh, contract in that what the fear was amongst the business sector was that the, the uh, encryption that they chose was inferior and that they chose it because they themselves wanted a backdoor and wanted to be able to get into that. Now, um, the Senate investigation doesn't find any evidence of that, but it does conclude that there is a potential capriciousness which is possible in ambiguous and uncertain situations, such as an agency that is responsible for penetrating communication networks, being responsible for deciding the encryption of those networks. So this is the, you can't have this balance. 
because the, the dual hat nature of the NSA, of attack and espionage, or defence and attack, just won't work. Um, and there's a massive tension between what consumers want and the sector wants and what the NSA wants. The NSA wants all sorts of security measures that slow down access to technology, um, but, uh, but that make it much more secure. And consumers just want speed and ease of access. And eventually what happens is you get a whole bunch of um, uh, powerful Silicon Valley CEOs lobbying government saying you're interfering, you're interfering in, in the free market here. Um, if consumers want security, they'll buy security. If they want quick access, they'll buy that. And the NSA can't tell us what we should do with our systems. Um, but Cyber Command has that as part of its authority. It's supposed to liaise with Silicon Valley and discuss security of systems. Um, there's also a, uh, a clash here with uh, academia in that the NSA starts trying to decide what can and can't be published in terms of research on uh, cryptography and encryption. Conferences that involve Russians and Chinese academics. Academics are banned from travelling to these and sharing their uh, uh, research findings. Um, uh, a, a series of databases between universities are shut down because the CIA finds evidence that the Russians are accessing these databases <coughs> and are compiling information. And none of them are specifically to do with national security, but what the CIA argues is if you pull all of this information, you can gather more data about the um, United States than they want to release. So they tell them that that needs to be limited and that they, they cannot create free open access databases, which universities push back on very hard. This is the birth of the internet. The ARPANET was about universities sharing data and information between them. And the NSA says that practice has to end. Um, and the public, the public in particular, um, uh, magazines like Omni, um, run articles where they talk about this idea of um, the government becoming controllers of information. That what if you ended up with another Richard Nixon and the NSA can decide what domestic security is. Or if you ended up with a director of the NSA, or in this case, a director of Cybercom that was someone like another J. Edgar Hoover. This idea that um, actually in bringing an agency like that into the domestic environment, you are creating a real potential for abuse. And I think we can see that easily. If you think of an individual like um, uh, Donald Trump able to direct the full force of the NSA against domestic targets, um, then, then this doesn't seem very paranoid at all. Um, so ultimately what happens is partly weakened as a result of um, uh, the Iran-Contra affair. Congress strikes back and um, NSDD-145 is struck down and the NSA is told you will not engage in any domestic security. Um, the National Bureau of Standards is given the job um, and acknowledging this massive technical expertise gap that clearly it's not in a position to take up this job, um, what Congress orders is that the NSA needs to support them and help them, which the NSA then does not do in any way. With NSDD-145 being struck down, they completely withdraw from this. So to conclude, um, what I would argue is that the United States has already been through a paranoia about cybersecurity. And they decided that the way to do it was to militarize <coughs> it and to bring their most effective um, uh, cyber security um, or, or the most effective cyber teams that they have to focus on the domestic side. 
But once they realise what that actually means in terms of bigger ideas of security, the liberty of citizens, freedom of information, privacy, that they made the decision to actually be more vulnerable at home in exchange <coughs> for not having this authoritarian control. Um, and if you look at the way other more authoritarian governments use the internet or dominate it, like Russia, like China, um, like authoritarian regimes across the Middle East, then the United States made a very deliberate decision not to follow that path. And the risk of cyber command is it, while that's not its intention, it creates a mechanism that, if abused, could absolutely do that once more. And I think what we'll see, now it's been stood up, is that gradually, as it tries to push into those other sectors, we will see those sectors push back against it and decide that they don't want that military presence, they don't want that militarization. And if it means a less secure cyber domain, um, but more individual and personal freedoms and more guarantees that the government cannot dominate the domestic domain, then I think that's probably what citizens are going to choose. They will choose insecurity over increased cyber security. Thank you very much. in American history um, at the University of Birmingham. Her research interests include post-Cold War US foreign policy, with a particular focus on the development of neoconservatism, intellectuals and foreign policy, humanitarian interventionism, the Bush administration and the global war on terror, as well as the history of the CIA. Her first monograph, titled Neoconservatism and the New American Century, was published uh, in 2010. She's also co-edited a volume of essays titled Foreign Policy at the Periphery, The Shifting Margins of US International Relations Since World War II, which was published in 2017. Her talk today is titled Full Spectrum Dominance, Globalization, Conflict, and US National Strategy in the 21st Century. Thank you. And it's based on her uh, latest book, which is very new, and was released last month. Yeah. Yeah, so it's very exciting to have some new research. <laughs> Thank you so much, Francesca, for inviting me here, and I've really enjoyed your two papers as well, and thanks to all of you for coming. Um, I am quite shamelessly going to be talking about this um, new book of mine here, which even more shamelessly I'll be placing just here. Um, <laughs> and um, I think it kind of directly addresses uh, the title of this panel, which is The Changing Nature of US Warfare in the 21st Century. And my focus is um, on the US relationship to what is known as irregular warfare and how that has changed in the 21st century. And I'm interested in um, the intellectual, organizational, strategic and doctrinal uh, and operational shifts that led to and uh, resulted from the elevation of irregular warfare in uh, planning and operations across the US government from um, George W. Bush to Barack Obama, and I think the ultimate purpose of this was what uh, the Pentagon in 2004 called full-spectrum dominance, meaning dominance across the entire spectrum of conflict from conventional warfare uh, through to irregular forms of, of conflict. And the DOD believed that the information revolution of the late 20th century had changed the character of some of the security challenges uh, faced by the US. So in order to ensure 
continued US primacy and security in an era of globalization, it was no longer enough to, um, to be the preeminent conventional military power. Uh, the US also had to develop the capacity to, to wage and win irregular forms of conflict. In 2008, the Pentagon released uh, a directive declaring that irregular warfare was, quote, as strategically, as, Im as strategically important as traditional warfare and stated that the US military had to be, quote, as effective in irregular warfare as it is in traditional warfare. That term, irregular warfare, um, is a contested <coughs> one, I think. Uh, the definition that I'm interested in really is the one developed by the US military uh, and first published in the 2007 Joint Operating Concept on Irregular Warfare. And that document describes irregular warfare in the following terms. Irregular warfare is defined as a violent struggle among states and non-state actors for legitimacy and influence over the relevant populations. Irregular warfare favors indirect and asymmetric approaches, though it may employ the full range of military and other capabilities in order to erode an adversary's power, influence, and will. So I'm interested in how and why the US government came to this understanding of irregular warfare and why it placed such a countercultural definition of warfare alongside conventional military uh, operations, eventually giving it priority um, equal to, to conventional uh, military capabilities, or at least that was the intention. So the book is um, basically a political history of the rise of this conception of irregular warfare uh, across the US government and in practice on the ground in what I call the war on terror on the periphery, by which I mean the smaller or secondary uh, fronts of the war on terror, which were established in sub-Saharan Africa and the Philippines and Georgia and the Caspian Basin. So I became interested in irregular warfare kind of indirectly because this project started off as um, a history of what I began to think of as the war on terror on the periphery uh, in the Bush years, which is something that um, predated the expansion of the drone program, uh, although I do discuss drones uh, in the context of irregular warfare uh, in the chapter on Obama. But my interest was initially um, in the way in which the Bush administration conceived of the war on terror from the outset as something that was potentially global in scope and not just limited to Afghanistan and Iraq. So I started researching these peripheral fronts of, of the war on terror that were established in late 2001, early 2002. As I said, these fronts were in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Philippines, and in, in Georgia. So my book is in part uh, a history of these peripheral fronts of the war on terror, and it, it asks when and how and why these um, areas became fronts in, in the war on terror, and what the US uh, existing interests were uh, in these regions and, and why 9-11 kind of changed the US calculus in these areas. But as I was researching this, I, I realized that there was something kind of significant about the way that the US was intervening in these spaces. It wasn't using conventional military uh, techniques. It was mostly using special operations forces and it wasn't relying on conventional military tactics. Uh, but using techniques that were classified at the time as unconventional or non-traditional or non-kinetic. And so the more I looked at um, US operations in, in the peripheral theatres in the years after 9-11, the more I began to um, 
understand these countries and regions as the first testing grounds, if you like, for the early use of irregular warfare techniques in the war on terror. And that's something that kind of, to some extent, goes against the grain uh, of some of the existing research on irregular warfare and US foreign policy in, in the 21st century. There's been a lot of very valuable um, research on the deployment of uh, counterinsurgency techniques in Iraq um, from the very earliest experiments with counterinsurgency in 2004 through to the deployment of a nationwide counterinsurgency approach, uh, the so-called surge in, in 2007. And counterinsurgency is classified by the US military as a variant of irregular warfare. So most of the literature in, in this field was tracing um, the revival of irregular warfare in, in US military and national strategy uh, to the deployment of uh, a counterinsurgency campaign in Iraq in, in 2007. What I'm arguing in my book is that the deployment of, of counterinsurgency in Iraq is not the whole story of the US military's rediscovery of irregular warfare in the 21st century. The turn towards uh, irregular warfare, including counterinsurgency, I think predated Iraq. And I think that there were two additional tracks along which uh, irregular warfare developed in the 21st century, uh, both of which have been, been largely overlooked. Um, the first one is the peripheral theatres of the war on terror, as I mentioned. But secondly, uh, uh, well actually I think first and foremost, the turn towards irregular warfare in the 21st century was, was a response to the perceived impact of globalization on uh, international security. And for US policymakers, I think uh, the 9-11 attacks uh, were, were really the first catalyst uh, for the turn towards irregular warfare. The shock of 9-11 uh, set in motion a new interpretation of the 21st century security environment for senior US policymakers, despite America's overwhelming um, conventional military power. Policymakers recognized that uh, 9-11 had been a different kind of attack, an asymmetric attack um, that the US was not prepared for. After 9-11, policymakers began to think more about the impact of globalization on international security and the ways in which this uh, empowered uh, non-state uh, actors like Al-Qaeda, uh, which could communicate and raise funds and uh, travel and organize uh, more easily than ever. Uh, in the 21st century. Joseph Nye argues that for US policymakers, September 11th was like a flash of lightning on a summer evening that displayed an altered landscape. So in this altered landscape, I argue, uh, states were no longer the only or even the principal security threat. Non-state actors and networks could challenge the US in ways that it was not uh, equipped to respond to. So after 9-11, Policymakers came to realize that uh, relying purely on conventional military power to maintain US primacy and security uh, was not enough in an age of transnational networked uh, asymmetric threats. That, I think, was one of the key lessons that, that US policymakers took from 9-11. Uh, Related to this, another key lesson that policymakers took from 9-11 from was that weak and failing states like Afghanistan were just as much uh, of a threat to US security as powerful, hostile nation states 
uh, because weak states could be penetrated and exploited by globalized transnational uh, non-state actors like terrorist networks. So after 9-11, the concept of weak and failing states became an important premise in US national security <coughs> planning and policymakers increasingly began to turn towards irregular methods and objectives uh, as a way of stabilizing weak states uh, that could be exploited by um, non-state adversaries. So 9-11, I think, uh, meant that US policymakers gradually began uh, to think about international security in the 21st century in different ways. This is clear, I think, from um, national strategy documents and military strategy documents uh, published after 9-11 and, and also from uh, the internal discussions uh, that preceded them, certainly those that, that we have access to. Now, I'm not suggesting that the concept of irregular warfare uh, suddenly appeared fully formed uh, after 9-11. Uh, that's not the case at all. Uh, and obviously the invasion of Afghanistan uh, had a, a largely conventional objective, regime change. What I'm arguing uh, is that the, the seeds of this approach to uh, security that eventually culminated in the 2007 Joint Operating Concept uh, on Irregular Warfare can ultimately be traced back, I think, uh, to 9-11 because it was the asymmetric nature of this attack uh, and its connection to a failed state, Afghanistan, uh, that meant that policymakers began to ask um, serious questions about the types of adversaries that the US faced uh, in the 21st century and started to believe that to safeguard US primacy and national security, it was no longer enough to rely um, purely on conventional military superiority. So 9-11, I think, um, set in motion the development uh, over, over several years, I think, of a new approach to national security premised not just on ensuring conventional U.S. military primacy, but also uh, on developing the capacity to wage what would eventually become known as irregular warfare. And in 2004, uh, the Pentagon used this phrase full-spectrum dominance uh, to refer to a spectrum of conflict uh, that now encompassed not just conventional military conflict, but also irregular warfare as well. So the development, I think, of a, of a national strategy that incorporated irregular warfare um, took several years to come to fruition, but I think it can ultimately be traced back to 9-11. Uh, the first testing grounds for irregular tactics in the 21st century were the peripheral or second tier uh, theatres of the Bush administration's war on terror. And these were states, uh, in, in the view of US policymakers, states that were weak, uh, that lacked full control over their borders and their territory. Uh, policymakers feared that terrorists might exploit uh, these areas as operational bases. Rumsfeld, on the 19th of September 2001, wrote, quote, the president has stressed that we are not defining our fight narrowly and are not focused only on those directly responsible for the September 11th attacks. So while Afghanistan was the, the kind of opening front in the war on terror, there were also these secondary fronts of the war on terror that developed from late 2001 <coughs> onwards across sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in the Philippines and in Georgia. And on these fronts, 
US action was led from the beginning by special operations forces, which already specialized in uh, what was then called unconventional warfare. And I think the use of um, special forces rather than general purpose forces uh, trained in conventional warfare is probably one of the reasons uh, why operations in these peripheral theaters uh, in many respects anticipated the development of uh, policy on irregular warfare back in Washington. Operations on the periphery were uh, a step ahead, if you like, of, of many of the doctrinal and policy and organizational changes uh, that were taking place across the US government uh, that led ultimately to the elevation of the concept of irregular warfare in US national strategy. So there were some um, quite sophisticated irregular campaigns uh, in uh, taking place in the uh, peripheral theatres uh, of the war on terror, which anticipated the maturing of ideas and policy uh, about irregular warfare back in Washington. So I think it's in, in these peripheral theatres that, that we see irregular warfare uh, in its most uh, advanced form uh, in the early stages of, of the war on terror. And the tactics and uh, techniques used by special forces uh, to ostensibly secure uh, these areas from transnational terrorists would later be subsumed uh, into the um, 2007 joint operating concept on irregular warfare. And the capacity to conduct irregular warfare would, for a short time anyway, become a core part of uh, the mission of the general purpose forces, not just something uh, marginal to be done by special operations forces. And as the general purpose forces increasingly took on irregular tasks and missions, irregular warfare became uh, an increasingly central part of, of US national strategy. So peripheral uh, counterterrorism operations constituted, I think, an, an important track along which policy, the policy and doctrine and practice of irregular warfare gradually developed uh, after 9-11. And finally, as an insurgency developed uh, in Iraq, that campaign also became the focus of a major new counterinsurgency effort for uh, the US Army, uh, which was subsequently applied kind of in a modified form to Afghanistan. That track has been the subject of, of almost all uh, the scholarly studies of counter-insurgency counter and irregular warfare and, and the war on terror. Um, I don't address, I don't really write about Iraq um, much in this book apart from in the introduction, uh, and I, d I certainly don't dispute the importance of Iraq, but what I'm trying to do is to kind of widen the analysis by considering additional locations uh, in which irregular warfare techniques were applied uh, and other reasons why policymakers were turning to these methods and also trying to um, draw attention to uh, the broader project to develop and embed uh, irregular warfare techniques to ensure full spectrum dominance for the United States. So I think to fully uh, understand the evolution of U.S. irregular warfare capability and its elevation into U.S. national strategy uh, as opposed to merely its use by the U.S. Army in, in Iraq. It's important to think uh, more broadly about the lessons learned uh, by policymakers uh, from the 9-11 attacks and the ways in which the turn towards irregular operations often transcended the large 
core theatres of, of the war on terror, uh, where the initial uh, tactics and objectives were more conventional. I think the idea of uh, irregular warfare has become kind of embedded at an elite policy-making level and in US military doctrine because there has been a bipartisan acceptance of two of the key lessons uh, taken by US policymakers from 9-11. Firstly, that globalization has empowered non-state actors in new and deadly ways and that conventional military power uh, can't defend against these threats. And two, that transnational uh, networked adversaries are likely to take physical refuge in weak and failing states and that these spaces uh, may be stabilized and it may be possible to prevent adversaries from taking root in them by uh, using irregular methods. In the Obama years, uh, the new irregular capabilities that were developed in the Bush years uh, were maintained and in some cases uh, embedded even further, I think. Obama also accepted the alleged link between weak states and terrorism. However, the political will uh, to use these capabilities was much more limited. Obama had no desire to conduct uh, large-scale irregular warfare operations uh, like the counterinsurgency campaign in uh, Iraq. He was willing to continue with smaller scale irregular warfare operations uh, like the operations uh, across sub-Saharan Africa and in the Philippines which continued uh, well into the Obama years but in the case of for example Libya a failed state that that uh, did eventually attract al-Qaeda militants uh, Obama was very keen to stay out he led from behind so Instead, I think Obama's approach uh, emphasized certain elements of an ir the irregular warfare approach combined with targeted killing via drones. In particular, uh, Obama relied on train and equip programs. These were a core element of an irregular warfare campaign, training and equipping local security forces to control and stabilize ungoverned space uh, which might be exploited by uh, non-state adversaries. Under Obama, the Pentagon's Global Train and Equip Program, uh, which was started under Bush in 2005, was finally <coughs> made permanent, and the rationale given was that training and equipping local security forces would stabilize weak and failing states. Obama also remained committed to psychological warfare, another core component of, of irregular warfare, often expressed in um, irregular warfare parlance as, as the need to um, win hearts and minds. So the State Department under Obama established uh, a new initiative called Countering Violent uh, Extremism, uh, which was designed to push back against Al-Qaeda's online activities. But rather than <coughs> waging um, a holistic irregular warfare campaign, Obama, I think, utilized selected uh, irregular techniques uh, and used them on, on a relatively small scale and paired these with targeted killing on a much wider scale. And in the Trump years, I think, um, in an operational sense, 
what is left is, is the targeted killing. The capacity to conduct irregular warfare also remains, but there's no um, political will to, to use that at the moment, which, uh, in my opinion, is a good thing because it, it certainly doesn't have a, a successful track record, which is maybe something we can talk about more in the Q&A, but I'm going to finish that there.